everybody and welcome to the Hindus parley on whether India has gone past the peak and the worst is over. I have with me Dr. Gautam Menon, who is a professor of physics and biology at Ashoka University and co-author of COVID-19 modeling studies. And joining him is Dr. Girdhar Babu, who is a professor of epidemiology at the Public Health Foundation of India based in Bangalore, and is a member of uh, Karnataka COVID-19 Technical Advisory Committee. Uh, the first question uh, which goes to uh, Dr. Menon is, since uh, mid-September, the number of daily uh, fresh cases uh, recorded in India has been reducing from its peak of 90,000-odd though the tests have been remaining nearly constant at uh, 1 lakh. Does this strongly suggest that India has gone past the peak? I think what it suggests is that in the major cities of India and certainly some of the districts adjacent to those cities, there already have been sufficiently numbers of people infected that the numbers of new infections is going down, as might be expected. I don't think one can say yet that a bigger peak or an equivalent peak is not in store for us in the future. Because my feeling, as well as that of many other people, is that it has not been spreading uniformly in the country. There are still many districts in India where the number of cases remains small. So it's these cases that we will have to watch out for, especially in the, in, after the festival season that is going to happen in the next few weeks. So basically, you're talking about uh, Tier 2 cities and Tier 3 cities and rural area India? Yes. Probably at this stage, probably even more tier 3 and rural areas at the moment, where the disease is not known to have spread, as it has certainly in Bombay or Bangalore or Chennai or Delhi. Dr. Babu, would you like to add to that? Yeah, continuing with the caution um, with which uh, Gautam uh, gave uh, what is the real uh, um, scenario, I would just like to add... Uh, the most dense areas in the country might have already been affected, whether it's Mumbai, Delhi, Bangalore, Chennai, all these metros, and also the tier two and three cities. So therefore, uh, while the infection is spreading uh, temporarily from one area to another, we cannot certainly say that uh, the worst is over it. Uh, so therefore, uh, until we touch the baseline, um, which is the rock bottom, we will not be able to know whether another uh, uh, kind of uh, peak is uh, visible. Because in my experience with uh, measles, uh, polio and everything, even a slight deviation from uh, the cohort of uh, susceptible people versus how the infection is spreading this balance will ensure that a bigger peak coming much faster especially uh, when people have been hiding away from the virus and once uh, they start uh, mixing up with the young people who are uh, at risk of uh, spreading the disease to the elderly and those who have comorbidities. So how it plays out during the winter and afterwards, we'll have to see. So uh, certainly there's not a single wave uh, at the national level which we should be looking at. We should be looking at the state level. And also, we should be uh, looking at the data from serological surveys, verbal autopsies, and missed dates 
missed deaths from the states that are not reporting well to understand uh, the real nature of the peak. Both of you would concur that uh, we just cannot be certain that the worst is over. Yes, I think it's fair to say that. Yes. Uh, except uh, Telangana, most of the southern states, or almost all the southern states except Telangana, have been reporting very high number of cases right from the beginning. Uh, contrast this with the most populous states in northern India, say Uttar Pradesh, Bihar, Madhya Pradesh. These states have been reporting far fewer cases uh, daily, and the total number is also uh, very less. How do you explain this enigma? Can, can the virus spread so differently uh, in different parts of the uh, country? And uh, can, therefore, one expect uh, cases to spike uh, in these northern states which are currently or which have been reporting fewer cases so far? Dr. Babu, would you like to go first? Yeah, sure. So, uh, in my assessment, uh, uh, one of the strongest uh, dictums uh, which we are very familiar is the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So, just because the southern states or some other states, including um, uh, some in the north, are reporting uh, well, that doesn't mean only these states have uh, circulation going on and the other states have completely controlled it. Uh, therefore, there are many ways of assessing whether a state has already uh, gone past the surge in cases or is yet to surge. Uh, so one of the key things I would like to see is uh, state-level uh, serological surveys throughout the state and at the same time also uh, pick up some uh, infections in the acute phase. So. Uh, if you are able to test randomly throughout the state, uh, the few parameters that you can pick up. One is case to infection ratio, uh, the comparison between the reported case versus those who already have developed antibodies. The second is uh, what proportion of people in the general population have positivity by doing random antigen test and also RT-PCR. And verbal autopsies uh, of the deaths that are uh, there in the state, every state, I'm not saying only few states, these indicators will tell us whether the state has gone past uh, the surge in cases or is yet to surge. Without that, just looking at the numbers and then saying that only few states are uh, having higher transmission compared to the others is a statistical fallacy. I mean, this is the biggest trap we have... Uh, uh, seen in many infectious diseases. As a matter of uh, reporting cases, uh, many states get classified as high-risk states. Same thing happened in the HIV program and other infectious disease control. So we should not repeat the same mistake, at least in uh, COVID-19. And we should build uh, strong and resilient uh, systems of data collection and reporting. Yeah, I, I agree completely with that that uh, one should be very careful on the face of it, sort of low case numbers in both UP and Bihar, which is, are two states that public health professionals are really concerned with and worried about because of, A, because of the relatively low levels of health infrastructure, and B, because these are very large states in terms of population. UP is the largest subnational entity in the world with a population of about 210, 220 million. So on the face of it, those numbers look good, but exactly as, as Giri says, we have to know what those numbers actually mean on the ground. And for that, data is absolutely vital. We need to extend the sero surveys that have been done. ICMR sero survey did 
essentially 70 districts out of the 730-odd, less than 10% of, of the numbers of districts in, in India. And what we need is much more granular data that one can trust, exactly of the sort that he describes. That will give us a better idea of, is it just lack of reporting or insufficient testing that is governing these, uh, these numbers? Or are there genuine reasons? Is there a genuine reason to be happy about this? Uh, a supplementary question is, uh, these states have been, on, at least on paper, showing high number of daily tests. So uh, how, how is it that uh, the tests don't uh, reflect in the cases? Is it uh, because the tests are non-directed or is it uh, because the tests have been, uh, they have been relying entirely uh, or more on the rapid antigen test, which, uh, which has low sensitivity? What could be the reason? So one reason certainly is the ratio of RATs to PCR tests, which is fairly high in both states of Bihar and, and in UP. Also, testing exactly the method of who you test and, and, and uh, at what level you test is certainly an issue. And are you testing broadly enough in the general population to pick up surgeon numbers is certainly a question that, that one has to try and address and try and understand from the numbers. Also, in terms as a fraction of the absolute population of the state, those numbers are not good. As, as numbers on their own, they're very large. But if you divide them by the populations of the states, then they suddenly don't look all that good. So that's another thing to worry about. That is, you, you mean per, per million population? Yes, exactly. Yeah. In, in addition to what Gautam uh, very well explained, I also add uh, one more aspect, which is when are we testing? Hypothetically, neither me or not Gautam knows what's happening in the field. But if you are increasing the testing at a time when the surge in cases has not happened already or... The surge in cases has already happened in the past. So the number of people who are actually infected might be low in both uh, uh, scenarios. And we don't know which districts are in which uh, you know, stage of transmission in uh, um, several states. So therefore, if you are increasing the test when the prevalence is low, you will obviously pick up fewer numbers. Uh, whether it is uh, past the search or it to search. So this we will know only by zero surveys. Otherwise, we will not know. The ICMS uh, second zero survey uh, did indicate that over, over just about over 7% of the adult population have been infected. Uh, and the virus has also spread to the rural districts in the country. Uh, that being the case, as you had mentioned earlier, uh, can we expect uh, is, the, is the testing uh, really good in the rural areas to pick up these cases? Or are we missing and these would then uh, come up at, uh, at a later date as, as, as huge surges? Giri, do you want to answer that? Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, so uh, let me go first and uh, Gautam can uh, supplement. I uh, feel that uh, there is disparity between the way we test in metros, the way we test in urban areas versus the way we test in rural areas. And this is a function of uh, the strength uh, of the health system as such. So if you do not have a medical officer, if you do not have health staff in the remote areas uh, are, and then expect uh, people to be doing the same kind of testing as they would do in uh, metros and other urban areas, it's probably uh, too ambitious. So that's the first part. Uh, the second part, uh, based on uh, uh, Dr. Prasad, what you explained, uh, the ICMR survey was designed such that 
the same districts are done in both uh, rounds. So whatever uh, the survey gave, it gave a clear approximation of at least in the survey area that the rural areas might be involved. But now to corroborate that, we will have to do more uh, testing in rural areas. Uh, definitely that is important. Second, as I said earlier, and I'll, be, I'll have to repeat this many times, we need to understand uh, whether the rural dynamics of transmission are similar to urban areas. And that can only be known by doing zero uh, surveys there. And uh, uh, just to complete the entire picture, it's not the non-neutralizing antibodies in these rural areas or anywhere in the country. Uh, we still don't know what about T-cell uh, uh, immune response. We still don't know what proportion of people are acutely infected and yet not uh, detected. So it's a sum total of all these things that will give us a clearer picture. So without that kind of granular data, we will not be able to say uh, uh, simplistically that whether the rural areas are missing transmission or not. Yeah, let me just add to that a little bit. And certainly from informal reports that one is getting from more rural areas, it does seem to be that many more people are ill than are actually going in to be tested. So this is just a sort of observation that has been relayed to me and I'm sure to Giri too from various parts of the country. That is one thing. The other sort of issue that I see in areas that are more rural, again, been told to me, is that the delays between you know, falling ill and getting tested, or between getting tested and getting your results, is actually a fairly large delay. And this can be very significant. If you have to wait about a week or eight days before you can get tested, and a day or two after that before the results come back, this is very significant in you know, in, in the progression of disease from a person to person, in, in the infectiousness of a person to other people. So this is another thing to worry about. You may be testing, but you may just be testing and reporting late in where you should have been doing it much earlier. And these delays are significant. After recording zero uh, cases for a couple of days uh, in May, Kerala witnessed a very sharp surge with cases crossing even 10,000 a day. So, uh, now taking Kerala as an example, is there a reason to believe that the rest of the country might see a similar pattern or is it uh, Kerala has been like, uh, an outlier for some reason? Maybe I can answer that first and then Giri yeah, sure, can sure. add to that. Yeah. In, Kerala is a bit unusual among states in that it is extremely urbanized, that you don't have a clear separation between completely rural areas and completely urban areas. And usually these, and Kerala is also a fairly dense state. So I think both of these things are important. The second point also is that the transmission of disease from person to person is a chance event. And, you know, if you, anyone who runs simulations of disease processes moving from person to person will know that there are some, some instances in which the disease dies off automatically, some in which it grows to large numbers. We should not completely rule out the role of chance. However good a public health system is, however careful they are, there are always chance events, little things that you might miss that, it, that might have gone away on their own in some parallel universe, but we sort of will keep increasing in some other in, in real life. So I think there is always an element of chance in this increase that we should consider. But also Kerala is a bit special in having an older population and being quite urbanized. So basically you would say, uh, Dr. Menon, so you basically say that uh, uh, this uh, other states might not, may not uh, see a similar pattern as in Kerala. No, I think every state is quite different. And the particular pattern of the sort of large urban densities in Kerala I think are one reason why it's possible for a disease to move much more rapidly there than in some other states. 
Babu? Yeah, if I can add, uh, my understanding is that no area has uh, immunity for against uh, COVID-19, whether it's Kerala or New Zealand. New Zealand has an advantage because it's uh, geographically isolated and they can continue this restriction for longer. I would compare Kerala with uh, Karnataka and Andhra Pradesh. All these three states did really well during the lockdown in not allowing local transmission of cases. But once unlock started, Andhra Pradesh and Karnataka started getting cases where the local transmission was established and kept on expanding. Kerala did much better even when the unlock started in not allowing it. I agree uh, with uh, uh, Gautam that uh, at some point of time, uh, whether it's by chance or by a systematic process, the infection gets into your uh, geography. But then you have the entire population which is susceptible and it will spread like fire if there is high population density and people are not following precautions. So by the same logic, New Zealand will also have a, a, you know, a higher transmission a bit later if they allow people to come uh, into that island. So it's only a matter of time. We don't have a vaccine. We don't have any unknown mechanisms of immunity either to the uh, states which are reporting less cases now or to Kerala. And to say that Kerala is doing wrong uh, is a actually wrong thing because Kerala did really well in not allowing the transmission during uh, lockdown. Same did Andhra Pradesh and Karnataka. And eventually, every state will have cases. Uh, so that, that cannot be stopped. Yes, that's absolutely right. The DST appointed a modeling committee that went to modeling. Uh, they found that they, according to them, uh, there would be uh, about 50,000 active cases by December and minimal number of fresh cases by February. Do you at all, Dr. Menon, do you at all think that uh, uh, modeling, mathematical modeling during a pandemic for a period of up to four months, or four to five months, is, is a correct one or does it stand the test of uh, scrutiny? Well, I would certainly not do that and I would not recommend that anyone does it either with any degree of confidence. Um, I think all you can say is that this particular model with these particular numbers shows that cases will come down for three or four months down the line. But we have no particular reason to believe that those numbers will remain the same. The parameters in that model will remain the same as you go on. A much better index is what is a fraction of population of the country that you think is currently infected. And that will really tell you how many more people are there to be infected. And in a situation where inevitably, you know, there's some little spark here will set the whole fire off. That is the only thing that you can really be sort of concerned about and from that you can say anything about. So I would not trust any model that Tim that says they can predict a number four months down the line. And I would be very wary about that. And they also say that uh, you know currently the active cases uh, is around 7.5 lakh uh, active cases currently. And for it to drop to 50,000 in about uh, two months, do you think uh, it, it's, it's feasible or it's possible? It would be unusual for that to happen, but no, I'm not sure what that 50,000 number is. Is that 50,000 active cases altogether or uh, what exactly they were saying? I think they have said that they believe that 300 to 400 million people in India are already infected, which is, let's say, about 33% of India's population. That seems a little too high to me based on the other numbers that I've been seeing. But, but you know, at least I think 
200 million plus is probably a, a reasonable ballpark figure. We have to see where that number goes. There are lots of people yet to be infected. A lot of them are in, in areas that have not been exposed yet. At what rate they will get infected is the important question. I suspect that there will be a gradual background of infection as we go throughout the next couple of months. It will not dip very significantly, would be my feeling, at least for the next two or three months. Yeah, I mean, uh, Gautam is the expert on it, so uh, he's a modeler. But we, as uh, uh, we study uh, about modeling, uh, all models are you know uh, <laughs> wrong and only some are useful. Then the question is, useful to whom? So uh, these predictions um, are good as long as it is serving the purpose of planning, uh, ensuring that we are stepping up our resources. But then if it gives some kind of uh, uh, robust confidence that all is well, and then we might be as well uh, be free from this disease uh, beyond December. So that uh, I don't think any of us will have that kind of optimism yet. So we are very cautious. Uh, including this model uh, results, we'll be uh, very cautious uh, to anybody who says either there is exponential increase or exponential decrease. So uh, I am wary of both extremes and I would want to uh, look at seven days average at the minimum to see, uh, to know, understand what what is going to happen in the next seven days. Yes, I would agree with that. I mean, I don't really see what the point is of saying that something is going to happen four months later when we just don't have enough knowledge. I would really say that a week to two weeks in advance is the best that you can do. So I, you know, I sort of worry that putting such a long horizon on this really serves a political purpose rather than a public health purpose. The, the committee has not been able to provide uh, any uh, valid uh, explanation for why India has, suddenly, has seemed to speak. What, according to you, could be the reason why cases have been coming down uh, since mid-September? Especially considering that the lockdown, uh, various stages of lockdown had started months ago. There has been unrestricted movement of people as a result. And business establishments, uh, different kinds of business establishments uh, are opening up. So, uh, under these uh, uh, circumstances, uh, how do you still see the cases coming down? It's quite uh, uh, confusing. Yeah, um, if I can go first, uh, I, as I explained a little earlier, uh, I see, if you look at the data, what it suggests is those who are uh, prone to uh, increased population movement, those who have been working even when lockdown was there, those who did not follow the public health regulations, those were the areas which got the earlier uh, waves of circulation. Whichever city got hit, elderly and comorbidities were the first one to succumb. So when you see the most dense areas having affected already, then it's only the lesser population density which is the next focus. Therefore, the speed at which it will spread is going to be uh, definitely different from what it was earlier. The test positivity is also going down uh, given the testing numbers are not that uh, majorly uh, you know, decreased. Uh, RAT versus RT-PCR, we still do not have a clear delineation at the state and district level. So therefore, that's another noise in the data. But despite of all this, uh, definitely there seems to be some decrease in cases. But since we have not touched the uh, baseline, as I said before, 
we can't be completely sure that this is uh, over however uh, from this confusion we should also be looking at uh, reviewing the testing data uh, as uh, gautam clearly said uh, not just the numbers but the testing strategy in terms of whom are we testing which test are we using and then uh, whether we doing syndromic approach or not and all of this will also be known in case to infection ratio and serological surveys i think we should be using a more robust data to make such uh, assumptions yeah i i agree with what girish says is i think the downturn in the numbers is really because you've exhausted urban high density and and your tier 1 and tier 2 cities the numbers there because of large numbers of infections coupled with the fact that reporting there's a slight question mark about reporting from farm or rural areas and the questions of testing all of these are important there so i i really have nothing to add to uh, to giri's answer which is pretty much perfect considering that the festival season is uh, in india is coming and so so is winter and uh, very little restriction in people movement and with business establishments opening and uh, considering the fact that people aren't wearing a mask or even if they wear they are not wearing it correctly and physical distancing is uh, uh, very often violated you uh, can we really expect uh, the cases uh, to drop uh, by december and uh, come to a minimal number by february so I, maybe i can go first on that please no i think for me the central question will be for one is what is what will happen in bengal because now durga puja is prob- is just on the on the brink another few days and already we have seen large crowds some amount of mask wearing but not certainly not universal mask wearing and that what that level of crowding together will do to the numbers in bengal and presumably in other parts of the country is certainly something that will give us some hint of what might happen in the later festival season for example with diwali in north india so i would think that the combination of the cold weather the festival season the general laxity increasing you know the, it has been difficult on people both in terms of livelihoods that have been destroyed by the long lockdown as well as in terms of just you know regular social interactions and other to keep us so there is some weariness which will reflect in the reduction in mask wearing the reduction in distancing so i think the next month and a half is actually very crucial for where the pandemic if we can survive those months then it's possible that our numbers can stay down and maybe even approach the sort of numbers that the that the supermodel committee was talking about but i think that the real what will happen will happen we will see what will happen roughly about 2 weeks from from two, from next 2 or 3 days which is when bengal's numbers will begin to change possibly as a reflection of the durga puja festivities so yeah if i can come in um, so i agree with uh, gautam but i'll just add uh, um, three things mainly uh, one as gautam clearly explained earlier in, in with respect to kerala you just need an entry uh, for the infection to spread and festive season uh, and uh, close uh, space settings during winter are these uh, events whether you call it chance or systematic the next thing is uh, uh, in terms of again bayesian uh, principles we really don't know what has happened before to actually know and what is happening now and to predict what's going to uh, be in the future the reason i say this is let's assume uh, an area a has uh, already had surge in cases in the past and nearly 40 to 50% of the people are uh, previously infected 
so now even if the festivals are celebrated really well and many people uh, are in congregate settings even then you may not see uh, that kind of a spike in cases in that region a whereas in a region b if the earlier surge was not there the same kind of behavior might result in uh, big hot spots and then uh, many deaths and all that so Uh, this this is why this is confusing uh, because we don't know what's happening uh, at the district level so uh, i think we need to make uh, a a beginning of trying to understand at uh, each district level uh, to be able to uh, predict which districts require uh, more uh, care this is very important uh, dr prasad because the kind of resources we have in metros and other urban areas we do not have it at the district level or the rural areas so if we don't know which districts are going to surge in future we will not be able to make these um, uh, adjustments uh, shifting resources from a better area to these areas so therefore we are actually not using the data uh, in in the most uh, uh, wise manner so that's my worry so uh, a supplementary question to that is uh, would you then uh, say that uh, probably the number of uh, cases in uh, kolkata might be less compared to other districts which have not seen a surge earlier again assuming that kolkata might have had surge in cases in the past uh, if all the areas within kolkata have had uh, uh, a surge in the past then the other districts outside kolkata might surge uh, gautam please yeah no i agree with that but i think kolkata hasn't seen the sort of sustained surge that bombay saw pune saw delhi saw so it's not clear to me but that is because of people not being tested whereas the actual case numbers are much larger where there is some big huge background of cases there that have just not added to the numbers for kolkata so that exactly as asgiri said if people have already been infected even if we don't know about it the new numbers are expected to be small but in regions or pockets where there have been relatively few numbers of infections those are the ones that will take off and either way we hope that reporting is good enough for it, for us to be able to get some idea of what is happening and this is very crucial if we don't have an idea of what is happening because state governments want to conceal what is going on or there is no we don't get enough feedback about the, the situation on the ground then one is in no position to suggest anything because that basic information is not there so concentration on supplying data of high quality on a in a real time basis is really very crucial the icmr uh, second zero survey did indicate that just about uh, 7% of uh, 7% of adult population had been infected and considering that uh, even today uh, work from home uh, is being practiced as much as possible you think uh, there's a huge susceptible population out there in the country including in cities like mumbai delhi chennai uh, and bangalore which should uh, might get infected at a later date and therefore uh, what we see as india going past uh, gone past the peak may not be actually true okay maybe i can go first and then giri um so my feeling if you if you ask me is that in pune bombay delhi define the sort of as as a city components themselves i you would really expect to see a, a substantially larger peak there may be small fluctuation because from the zero surveys in those cities we know that 40 to 50% of people are already infected certainly that is the case for both bombay and for pune and so if anything it may be a little easier for people to go out 
in those cities to resume some form of normal life if we're taking adequate precaution than in regions where the reports, reported numbers have been much smaller. A 6%, as I said, applies to the 70 districts that are non-urban, that are primarily mixture of rural districts which don't contain hotspots. So, and 70 districts out of 740 is still a relatively small number in the second set of survey done, was done in the same districts. So, over 90% of Indian districts, we don't have adequate serological information. And that is, again, something that I hope ICMR and other agencies will fill in as, as, as soon as they can. Giri, you have more experience in this. Thank you, Gautam. I think that was well explained. Uh, what I, I would like to add uh, is whether it's uh, any metro, um, we need to understand these are not homogeneous uh, uh, geographical regions. Um, I'm sure uh, you would have observed uh, even in Chennai, Mumbai or Delhi, the zones which had surge in cases earlier, they were mostly uh, in the central business district or where most of the business activities were happening or most uh, slums were there. And now we are seeing surge in cases in the uh, peri-urban areas, uh, which are not completely different from other uh, rest of the metros, uh, outside the metros within the same uh, state. So which means that even at the level of metros, there have to be differential strategies for differential uh, uh, zones. Uh, that being said, uh, we can't uh, uh, you know, throw away all the caution and then say, okay, now these metros have gone past the search and uh, uh, let's get back to the very old uh, time. So that's not going to definitely happen for some time. But uh, at the same time, the seroprevalence uh, of ICMR uh, we know the limitation that it's only <clears throat> nearly 10% of the districts. So therefore, uh, that was not meant to be representative. As Gautam said, I would relay more on uh, the zero surveys done in the metros uh, to make any uh, conclusion. The U US and uh, uh, Dr. Menon, this is particularly to you. Uh, the US and many European countries like Spain, France, uh, the UK, they have been seeing a, uh, a surge right now, uh, or what they call it as a second wave. Uh, even if cases uh, actually reduce in India with all these precautions or other things, do you think uh, India can buck the trend or will we also see a surge uh, months later, if not weeks later? There's absolutely nothing to prevent a surge in India based on the numbers. Had we crossed a threshold of about 40 to 50% infected, maybe the chances of that would have been much less. I still think currently we are less than that number. And I think currently that the festival season in, in, in Bengal and North India will be the crucial test. But there is absolutely nothing to rule out a, a, surge, a surge in cases comparable to the one that we already see. Babu? Uh, <clears throat> in my opinion, uh, you can only have a second wave when the first wave is over. Now, uh, looking at the national level and then saying that whether we'll have a second wave or not uh, might not be the right thing to do for India. We should be looking at state level. And uh, some states are just peaking now. And uh, some states have already gone through the at least the surge uh, for the first time. We don't know what's going to happen in the district level and the rural areas. So I would uh, definitely not rule out uh, having uh, sustained transmission. I would rather call it as a plateauing or just before we hit the baseline again, we'll search. So those kind of, uh, you know, trends. Yeah. No, I, I, sorry, just to sort of come back. To, I agree with that. It's, 
I suspect that what we will see is we are seeing it come down, but I don't think it will go down very, very much more. I'd be surprised if it did. If in the lucky state, it would sort of very slowly and gradually go off, maybe over the case over four to six months. And there's always a possibility of a peak. And as Giri says completely correctly, one should this should be local statements, you know, Delhi versus Telangana versus, versus Tamil Nadu, because the looking at numbers on an India-wide scale doesn't make sense. Delhi did see a sort of a reasonably prominent second wave and maybe the hint of even a third wave. But most most other places in India have not seen it. And I agree completely that unless we even think about this wave finishing, it makes no sense to talk about further waves. So there's a supermodel uh, committee that uh, actually said that there will be minimal number of cases by February. That's uh, stretching it too far or... What do you what would you say about it? There are too many uncertainties in that to really to really say is what I would say. I mean, I agree with some part of their comments that already a fair fraction of India has been infected. That a part of it I think is true. That you know whether that number is twenty percent or thirty percent or forty percent, we can argue about. It's also equally true that there are a lot more people who could be infected, and that that number is at least let us say twenty to thirty percent more. Whether you will see them being infected in one sharp second peak that rises above where we are currently, or whether that will be spread out over a long time, is a different question. But the, these two points are to be importantly kept in mind, that we are nowhere near any real threshold for herd immunity by infection, even if such a thing actually existed. There are lots of people who remain to be infected in the country. These people are mainly in rural parts of the country, not so much in the cities. Keeping track of them will be much more difficult. And we should be very careful with the festival season because that's real dangers in terms of in terms of the spreading of the disease. And if I can add, uh, although measles is a much more infectious disease than COVID-19 is, what uh, we have seen is uh, even minor deviations from protective levels in the population lead to very large outbreaks, uh, uh, even if it's in clusters in local areas. So we just cannot say, uh, you know, for the entire country, the things are over because we still have cohorts of, uh, you know, susceptible people in different areas. And uh, given the kind of uh, heterogeneity that we have in the country, uh, we just cannot uh, uh, predict uh, this based uh, on modeling alone. We need to understand what's happening in the field. You think, uh, Dr. Menon, do you think uh, uh, COVID-19 would become endemic in India, just like H1N1 uh, is? I think it's quite likely. I mean, that seems to be the direction in which it's going. We know that the other coronaviruses are endemic, the ones that are associated with the common cold. So there's no reason why that should not happen for COVID-19, as far as I can see. Giri, do you have a... Yeah, so... Uh, the, the question is uh, when, right? So uh, when would this become endemic? And um, that is solely dependent on how uh, uh, we are implementing uh, use of masks and uh, you know avoiding uh, three Cs, uh, close spaces, crowds and close uh, contact settings. And um, uh, that timing is very important because uh, would you reach that level uh, before a vaccine is available? or after it is there and what are the implications. So therefore, uh, uh, for now, I'll, I'll just say, I really don't know how this virus is going to affect us in the long run, but uh, more likely I'll agree with uh, Gautam at some point of time, yes, it's going to happen. In which case, we'll probably have to get used to having a, a vaccine every year, having a shot every year or a booster shot every year or two years. 
Do you think as a policy decision, it will be uh, wise to encourage work from home to reduce the number of uh, infections, even when the vaccine is available, because it is going to take time for a sizable percentage of the population to get vaccinated, provided the vaccine is effective? I think there are many reasons to look at different ways of working than we have. Our cities are miserably crowded and polluted, and we don't want to add more people dashing back forth, you know, for 50 kilometers a day to to work in a place. When we have alternatives, I think that is one. If there is any positive, it's that of of COVID-19. It's that we have learned that there are different ways in which one can work or construct a work environment. Some of this will work for some people, will not work for a large number of people, but as far as we can. This fulfills both a public health perspective, both a public health purpose as well as a psychological purpose. We can make our cities a little more livable by reducing the number of people who use you know, road transport, who, people who travel long distances and flights. We can do something for global warming in that case. These are, I think, good good things to have come out. But you know, this is an unexpected positive for me. Yeah, I, I, I'll agree. I completely agree with that, Gautam. I'll just add that not everybody is privileged to work from home. So you can't have a construction worker working from yeah, home. I so, agree. I agree. so therefore, there are huge equity uh, issues uh, around this. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, and definitely it has uh, far more uh, beneficial effects if at least those who are privileged, if they can continue to work from home and they don't contribute to uh, pollution and other stuff and also in terms of other infectious disease settings uh, more than uh, work from home if we were to continue avoiding crowds and ensuring that people are wearing masks and we are following uh, these uh, you know cough etiquette in public places i think these are far more beneficial public health practices uh, in the long run i agree completely very good point with, uh, do you think of uh, uh, opening up of educational institutions, especially uh, universities and colleges, because uh, the, the teenagers tend to behave uh, as much as uh, much like adults in the way they transmit the virus and the way they get affected? Do you think it is uh, considering that uh, the cases are still uh, high in India? Uh, yesterday, on October 19th, uh, 45,000 cases were reported. That's the least uh, cases reported in a long time. But still, these are very high numbers. So, considering that, do you think it is uh, prudent to open up educational institutions? Babu? Okay. okay. So, uh, I, I have uh, a comp- uh, a stand which is uh, definitely confusing as if now because the evidence is not uh, clear enough. But then one of my own view is that uh, in the United Kingdom, if you see the surge in cases now, this is triggered by uh, the cohort of young people who are more active and then they're spreading to the elderly. And this is uh, uh, resulting in higher mortality among the elderly. So uh, from that perspective, uh, whether opening up uh, uh, schools uh, or colleges at this point of time, is it going to help India's case, uh, especially in sustaining a downward trend that we are at least apparently seeing, uh, is doubtful. So uh, I would rather uh, wait and watch or have better estimates of seroprevalence among the young people and elderly to understand in a particular state whether this can be done or not. But unfortunately, 
you cannot have an isolated education policy for one state versus others because we have uh, some of the centralized uh, boards and therefore it becomes very difficult from an implementation point of view yeah no i, I agree with that statement i mean just just additional point is there are psychological costs to keeping young people at home confined for a long period of time and out of school and various people have been talking about these issues that to how long can you make sure that people are not in their peer group especially when they happen to be young not in a learning environment and to what extent can can a purely electronic means substitute for what really ought to be a classroom environment but i agree with giri on balance that it's certainly not something i think we should do in the short term maybe by january the issue will be somewhat clearer and we should all have a clear understanding of what the risks are that are involved i mean parents should understand that whatever you do there will be some measure of risk that is involved in this we should enforce as far as possible in the institutions that we have whatever distancing that we can and we should make it perfectly acceptable for people since they now used to doing uh, sort of work from home classes electronic to see if some combination of a physical class and electronic class might be might be possible for example in the university where i work it might be possible to do that may not be a general solution for everybody but to see whether one should be a little relaxed about not insisting that everyone comes to class people can work from home and yet figuring out how this is a sustainable thing maybe a challenge for the next 6 to 8 months in this context what what about uh, school children uh, there's uh, so much of conflicting reports well, one uh, one set of studies saying that children do not uh, transmit uh, the virus the other set uh, saying that uh, they, they are very good carriers of the virus Uh, what what should be the policy for schools i think i think new york is having a very extensive policy in, in not every school but in some schools in which they first do a temperature check outside and they do regular tests i think it probably tests about 5 to 10% of students every day on a rolling basis and find a relatively small number of cases early enough so that seems to be one way to go if you can do that certainly the cost of testing would inhibit that at the moment but if you have some reasonably cheap paper based tests that you can administer to large numbers of people that is not expensive that might be one direction to possibly go this is a line of thought that people that epidemiologists at harvard have been have been pursuing for a while i think tests are getting cheaper whether by december january we will have you know the the desirable the sensitivity 90% or 80% paper based tests that you can use just you know in, immediately it will give you an answer if you have if you if you are infected or not that might be something to look for if it happens that would certainly make this whole process of getting people back to school somewhat easier giri what you what is your no opinion? i think i completely agree with that i don't think i have anything else to add here. this is the model that uh, us universities have been following where they uh, test of a sizable number of students each day and they repeat the tests uh, on these students repeated testing has been able to bring down the number of uh, cases there and the universities have been functioning uh, do you think uh, such a such a model could be followed in india but yes the cost of testing is there i think the main inhibitory thing is is the cost of testing and if i think if there is a a, a paper based point of care test that you, that is cheap enough it might be worth investing in that for the government to invest in that so that people can come back to school and schools and colleges certainly are sort of regions where one should be worried about one can control maybe the general population but schools and colleges in fact maybe even things like entry to malls could be controlled by this for example singapore does this if you enter a mall they, they they test you at that point of entry check your temperature and so on we'll just have to get used to this but i think the main thing is cost 
If cost and, and sensitivity of the test, if we can cross the barrier in which both of these become reasonable, then I think that may be the way forward. Yeah, I think, um, uh, I mean, I, there's not much to add, but then in my own engagement with some of the state governments, the current costs are simply not sustainable, uh, given the situation that most states are in. And one of the main reasons why states want to cut down uh, current levels of testing is because of the cost. Uh, uh, so therefore, uh, unless it is, uh, there is an alternative which is viable, which is feasible and which is cost effective, I don't know when it is going to come, uh, when we actually have the surge in cases or pass the surge in cases. Uh, so for these reasons, I think this question is theoretical at this stage. Uh, let me ask you a final question. Supposing there is universal mask wearing and correct uh, and wearing of mask, correct wearing of mask, maintaining of physical distancing, maintaining hand hygiene, and avoiding crowded places, avoiding uh, enclosed places, uh, particularly those which are less ventilated. These non-pharmaceutical interventions, if these are uh, practiced religiously, is is there a, a way to uh, bring down the cases, daily cases, sharply, without even wait, having to wait for a vaccine? Um, if I can go first, I would, uh, since that's a wish list, I would also like to add <laughs> better testing and better health system, better primary health care and universal health coverage. And there's no out-of-pocket expenditure. Uh, so this list can go on, Dr. Prasad, but we know what's happening. And if these things are met, especially the set of non-pharmacological interventions that you mentioned, if you are able to do that, we will be able to titrate the number of cases to such low levels that our health systems are perfectly be able to manage it. And in fact, that's the goal of uh, having all these non-pharmacological interventions. Uh, but uh, whether this is enough uh, uh, to make a case for not to have a vaccine, I'm not confident of that. I, I, I uh, think uh, a group of people will still require a vaccine. And there might be uh, some uh, who might be requiring every year. So, again, it's too early to make any conclusive statements about this virus. Yeah, I mean, Greed summarized that perfectly. The only thing I might add is, in general, more equity in society. I mean, right now, a large fraction of the, of the population of the country you know, cannot afford the consequences of a rigorous lockdown. We have no way of compensating them for that. We have no universal basic income that they can be provided. And it's hard to expect them to be able to sustain you know, all of these interventions because this is part of the livelihood of the people. So along with everything that Giri said, the move towards data equity and, equity and, and, and removal of these very stark inequalities in our society is also, I think, a part of what we should try and accomplish. And that you know, is a background to anything that we might think of doing with public health. Okay. Uh, thank you, Dr. Menon, and thank you, Dr. Babo. Thanks a lot for joining and for giving your giving your insights. Thank you very much. Thanks, Dr. Thanks, Prasad. Great fun. Thanks, Giri. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks, Gautam. Great to be with you. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.